Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 152 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the death of Yuri Gagarin. The first part of this episode is a review of some of the things covered in episodes 22 and 23. So, feel free to skip ahead if you already know this. Yuri Gagarin was born in the village of Klushino near Gushetsk on March 9, 1934. His parents worked on a collective farm. His father was a carpenter and a bricklayer, and his mother was a milkmaid. The Gagarin family suffered during the Nazi occupation in World War II. Klushino was occupied in November 1941 during the German advance on Moscow, and an officer took over the Gagarin residence. The family was allowed to build a mud hut approximately three by three meters inside on the land behind their house, where they spent a year and nine months until the end of the occupation. His two older siblings were deported by the Germans to Poland for slave labor in 1943 and did not return until after the war in 1945. In 1946, the Gagarin's family moved to Gahatsk, where Gagarin continued his secondary education. At the age of 16 in 1950, Gagarin entered into an apprenticeship as a foundry man at a steel plant near Moscow and also enrolled at a local young workers' school for 7th grade evening classes. After graduating in 1951 from both the 7th grade and the vocational school of mold making and foundry work, he was selected for further training at the Saratov Industrial Technical School where he studied tractors. While in Saratov, Gagarin volunteered for weekend training as a Soviet air cadet at a local aeronautics club where he learned to fly at first in a biplane, and later a Yak-18 trainer. He also earned extra money as a part-time dock laborer on the Volga River. After graduating from the technical school in 1955, the Soviet Army drafted Gagarin. On a recommendation, Gagarin was sent to the 1st Chakalov Air Force Pilot School in Orenburg and soloed in a MiG-15 in 1957. While there, he met Valentina, a medical technical graduate of the Orenburg Medical School. 
They were married on November 7, 1957, the same day Gagarin graduated from Orenburg. Post-graduation, he was assigned to the Luostari Air Base in Murmansk, close to the Norwegian border, where terrible weather made flying risky. He became a lieutenant in the Soviet Air Forces on November 5, 1957, and on November 6, 1959, he received the rank of senior lieutenant. In 1960, after much searching and a selection process, Yuri Gagarin was chosen with 19 other pilots for the Soviet space program. Gagarin was further selected for an elite training group known as the Vanguard 6, from which the first cosmonauts of the Vostok program would be chosen. Gagarin and other prospective candidates were subjected to experiments designed to test physical and psychological endurance. He also underwent training for the upcoming flight. Out of the 20 selected, the eventual choices for the first launch were Gagarin and German Titov due to their performance during training sessions as well as their physical characteristic. Space was limited in the small Vostok cockpit and both men were rather short. Gagarin was only 5 foot 2 inches tall. In October 1960, when Gagarin was one of the 20 possible candidates, a Soviet Air Force doctor evaluated his personality as follows, quote, Modest, embarrasses when his humor gets a little too racy. High degree of intellectual development evident in Yuri. Fantastic memory. Distinguishes himself from his colleagues by his sharp and far-ranging sense of attention to surroundings. A well-developed imagination. Quick reactions. Persevering. Prepares himself painstakingly for activities and training exercises. Handles celestial mechanics and mathematical formula with ease as well as excels in higher mathematics. Does not feel constrained when he had to defend his point of view if he considered himself right. Appears that he understands life better than a lot of his friends. Gagarin was also favored by his peers. When the 20 candidates were asked to anonymously vote for which other candidate they would like to see as the first to fly, all but three chose Gagarin. Gagarin kept physically fit throughout his life and was a keen sportsman. Cosmonaut Valery Baikovsky wrote, quote, Service in the Air Force made us strong, both physically and morally. All of us cosmonauts took up sports and PT seriously when we served in the Air Force. I know that Yuri Gagarin was fond of ice hockey. He liked to play goalkeeper. I don't think I'm wrong when I say that sports became a fixture in the life of the cosmonauts. In addition to being seen a keen ice hockey player, Gagarin was also a basketball fan and coached the Saratov Industrial Technical School team as well as being a referee. On April 12, 1961, the Vostok 1 spacecraft with Gagarin aboard was launched from Baikonur Cosmodrome. Gagarin thus became 
the first human to travel in space, and the first to orbit the Earth. His call sign was Cedar. The radio communication between the launch control room and Gagarin included the following dialogue at the moment of rocket launch. Korolov said, Preliminary stage. Intermediate. Main. Liftoff. We wish you a good flight. Everything is all right. Gagarin said, Let's go. Gagarin's informal, Let's go, became a historical phrase in the Eastern Bloc used to refer to the beginning of the space age in human history. Gagarin's flight was a triumph for the Soviet space program. The announcement on the Soviet radio was made by Yuri Leviton, the same speaker who announced all major events in the Great Patriotic War. Gagarin became a national hero of the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc and a worldwide celebrity. Newspapers around the globe published his biography and details of his flight. Moscow and other cities in the USSR held mass demonstrations, the scale of which was second only to the World War II victory parades. Gagarin was escorted in a long motorcade of high-ranking officials through the streets of Moscow to the Kremlin, where, in a lavish ceremony, he was awarded the title of Hero of the Soviet Union by Nikita Khrushchev. Later on, Gagarin toured widely abroad. He visited Italy, Germany, Canada, Brazil, Japan, Egypt, and Finland to promote the Soviet Union's accomplishment of putting the first human in space. He visited the United Kingdom three months after Vostok 1, going to London and Manchester. In 1962, he began serving as a deputy to the Soviet of the Union and was elected to the Central Committee of the Young Communist League. He later returned to Star City, the cosmonaut training facility, where he spent seven years working on designs for a reusable spacecraft. He became a lieutenant colonel of the Soviet Air Forces on June 12, 1962, and received the rank of colonel on November 6, 1963. Soviet officials tried to keep him away from any flights, being concerned about losing their hero in an accident. Gagarin was backup pilot for his friend Vladimir Komarov in the Soyuz 1 flight, which was launched despite Gagarin's protest that additional safety precautions were necessary. When Komarov's flight ended in a fatal crash, Gagarin was permanently banned from training for and participating in any further space flights. On December 20, 1963, Gagarin became Deputy Training Director of the Star City Cosmonaut Training Base. Two years later, he was re-elected as a deputy, but this time to the Soviet of Nationalities, one of the two chambers of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR. The next year, he began to re-qualify as a fighter pilot. And, by 1968, he defended his aerospace engineering thesis on the subject of space plane aerodynamic configuration. Then, 
On March 27, 1968, tragedy struck. While on a routine training flight from Chikalski Air Base, Gagarin and flight instructor Vladimir Seragin were killed in a MiG-15 UTI crash near the town of Kurtz Hatch. Next, I want to read you an excerpt. This is how Nikolai Kamanin, the head of cosmonaut training, described the accident just hours after it happened. Quote, Gagarin took off on a training flight in a MiG-15 UTI trainer fighter. This is a two-seater fighter. These aircraft are produced in Czechoslovakia. This model of the MiG-15 jet fighter had been stripped of armament, and the second seat was for an instructor. They flew into the zone in the area of Kurtz Hatch at 10.19 hours. At 10.27 hours, Gagarin reported that their mission had been accomplished. The aircraft was in the zone near Kurtz Hatch, and he requested clearance to return. His mission had taken just eight minutes to fulfill. He had time left over. At 10.29 hours, he received clearance to return, but he did not respond. At 10.32 hours, he was asked repeatedly why he did not respond. They called for both Gagarin and Seragin to make radio contact. There was no contact. Before this, radar had indicated that they were heading toward the airfield and were descending. Leonov, Nikolaev, and Baikovsky were there in the zone at that time. They said that they heard two explosions or bangs. Helicopters and one IL-14 took off on alert status. The entire area was divided into squares and the helicopters searched everywhere from an altitude of 50 to 100 meters. It wasn't until 1,300 hours that one of the MI-4 helicopter pilots spotted the signs of a crash and a huge hole in the forest three kilometers from the village of Novo Selovo. It was very difficult to discern anything in the thick forest. Two more helicopters approached, and the pilots finally managed to find the site that the first helicopter had indicated. I flew out there. It wasn't possible for a helicopter to land near this site. We made our way there from the road over very deep snow. We caught sight of a huge hole about four meters deep. Judging by the trees that had been cut down, one got the impression that the airplane had cut in at a 60-degree angle. Based on the debris field and the size of the crater, experts estimated that the impact velocity was around 700 kilometers per hour. They were unable to find anything intact. Everything was pulverized into tiny particles mixed with earth and snow and scattered over a 200 by 100 meter area. The engine had the sturdiest parts. They were presumably deep in the ground. We made no announcements and no reports until we found proof that the pilots had died. Maybe they had ejected. There was that glimmer of hope. By around 3 p.m., we had determined that one of them had died. That was clear. 
we found a piece of skin, someone's scalp. They were able to identify Seryagin's jaw by his teeth. Then, on a tree, they found part of a flight jacket with a pocket. It contained a breakfast voucher with the name Yuri Gagarin. Only after this were Brezhnev and Koshigin informed. All the pieces of the bodies were gathered and sent to Moscow for blood test. We quickly received an answer. They confirmed that it was Gagarin's blood. The snow was very deep. Instructions came from Moscow that everything that could be should be quickly gathered for cremation. It is a very difficult assignment. In order to cremate them separately, a blood test needs to be performed on each little piece. Dozens of people are working there now, but for now there's actually nothing to cremate. Before it gets dark, maybe we'll gather up something. The impact was very intense. The aircraft was 30 kilometers from the airfield at the moment we lost contact, and it followed a heading southwest of the airport. Why didn't they eject? End quote. During the excavations of the crash site, by some miracle, they found Gagarin's intact wallet. It contained his ID, driver's license, 74 rubles, and a photograph of Korolev. Not his wife, or his daughters, or his mother, but Korolev. The cremation of what remained of the pilots took place on the evening of March 28th. The urns for the funeral were delivered to the Order of the Red Banner Hall at the M. V. Frunz Central Building of the Soviet Army. Long before 9 a.m. on March 29th, which was the time announced for the building to open to the public, a line had already formed extending from the central building of the Soviet Army to the Sadovoy Ring. Both sides of the boulevard were jammed with people and cars. The first day, more than 40,000 people filed through the central building of the Soviet Army. They stopped admitting people late in the evening. On the morning of March 30, an endless line formed once again. The public would be admitted until 1 p.m. Red Square was full of people. The funeral procession moved from Central Building of the Soviet Army to the House of Unions along a corridor formed literally by two living walls of people held back by policemen and soldiers. The crowd was larger than the one for Korolev's funeral. For the majority of people, Korolev had been an abstraction. Before his official obituary appeared, most of the citizenry knew nothing about him. Hundreds of millions of people all over the world had seen Gagarin smiling joyfully in person or on television. He was theirs, he was familiar to everyone, and at the same time, a citizen of the universe. At the House of Unions, the funeral urns were transferred to gun carriages, and the procession made its way to Red Square. At 2.30 p.m., an artillery salute thundered. The urns of Gagarin and Seryagin occupied niches in the Kremlin Wall near Malinovsky 
Komarov, and Voronov. After the grief of the funeral, many people were outraged that Gagarin was allowed to fly in a fighter plane. They believed if he had died in space, it would have been better than dying in a senseless accident. But Gagarin himself was raring to go on this fateful flight. No one forced him. No state commission heard readiness reports or made the decision for this flight. No one ordered Gagarin to take the flight. His superiors merely gave their consent for the flight. They believed that Sarian, an experienced pilot and the group commander assigned to the Cosmonaut Training Center, would check out and monitor Gagarin's actions. For Sarigan, this was a routine, quite uncomplicated flight. He had completed hundreds of flights that were far more complex and difficult. Now, let's consider why the crash occurred. The cause of the crash that killed Gagarin is still not entirely certain and has been subject of speculation and conspiracy theories over the ensuing decades. By order of the Central Committee and Council of Ministers, a Government Accident Investigation Commission was created. Ustinov was appointed Commission Chairman. Sergei Anokin, a very experienced test pilot, was added to the Commission so he could assess the veracity of the different scenarios better than anyone else. All the Air Force, Civil Aviation, and Industry Services needed for the investigation had been called in for the Commission's work. In 2011, documents from the original 1968 Commission were declassified. These documents revealed that the Commission's original conclusion was that Gagarin, or Sergeyagin, had maneuvered sharply either to avoid a weather balloon or to avoid the upper limit of the first layer of cloud cover. This maneuver led the jet into a supercritical flight regime and to its stalling in complex meteorological conditions. Soviet documents declassified in March 2003 showed that the KGB had conducted their own investigation of the accident. In addition to one government and two military investigations, the KGB's report dismissed various conspiracy theories, instead indicating that the actions of the airbase personnel contributed to the crash. The report states that an air traffic controller provided Gagarin with outdated weather information and that by the time of his flight, conditions had deteriorated significantly. Ground crews also left external fuel tanks attached to the aircraft. Gagarin's planned flight activities needed clear weather and no outboard tanks. The investigation concluded that Gagarin's aircraft entered a spin either due to a bird strike or because of a sudden move to avoid another aircraft. Because of the out-of-date weather report, the crew believed their altitude to be higher than it actually was and could not react properly to bring the MiG-15 out of its spin. Another theory advanced by the original crash investigator in 2005 hypothesized that a cabin air vent was accidentally left open by the crew 
or the previous pilot, leading to oxygen deprivation and leaving the crew incapable of controlling the aircraft. A similar theory published in Air and Space magazine is that the crew detected the open vent and followed procedures by executing a rapid dive to a lower altitude. This dive caused them to lose consciousness and crash. In his 2004 book, Two Sides of the Moon, Alexei Leonov, who was part of the State Commission established to investigate the death in 1968, recounts that he was flying a helicopter in the same area that day when he heard two loud booms in the distance. Corroborating other theories, his conclusion is that a Su-15 jet was flying below its minimum allowed altitude and without realizing it, because of the terrible weather conditions, he passed within 10 or 20 meters of Yuri and Seregan's plane while breaking the sound barrier. The resulting turbulence would have sent the MiG into an uncontrolled spin. Leonov believes the first boom he heard was that of the jet breaking the sound barrier, and the second was Gagarin's plane crashing. In a June 2013 interview with Russian television network RT, Leonov said that a declassified report on the incident revealed the presence of a second unauthorized Su-15 flying in the area. Leonov states that this aircraft had descended to 450 meters and that while running afterburners, the aircraft reduced its echelon at a distance of 10 to 15 meters in the clouds, passing close enough to Gagarin to turn his plane and send it into a tailspin. However, as a condition of being allowed to discuss the report, Leonov was required to not disclose the name of the other pilot. Soon after Gagarin's death, Boris Chertok visited Grigory Pashkov, the deputy chairman of the Military Industrial Commission. During the conversation, Chertok mentioned that if Gagarin had died while returning to Earth after flying around the moon, it would have been a tragedy, but fitting and understandable. With a smile, Pashkov said, quote, Now I can say that the Central Committee never would have given its consent for Gagarin to fly on the L-1. And the fact that he died in an ordinary fighter plane on a pointless flight was our fault. It was our duty to prohibit the world's first cosmonaut from such amusements. We are to blame. End quote. One of Gagarin's most notable traits was his smile. Many commented on how Gagarin's smile gained the attention of the crowds on frequent tours he did in the months after the Vostok 1 mission success. Gagarin also garnered a reputation as an adept public figure. When he was visiting Manchester in the United Kingdom, it was pouring rain. However, Gagarin insisted that the car hood remain back so that the cheering crowds could catch a glimpse of him. 
McGarren stated, quote, If all these people have turned out to welcome me and can stand in the rain, so can I. End quote. McGarren refused an umbrella and remained standing in his open top Bentley so that the cheering crowds could see him. In conclusion, none other than Chief Designer Sergei Korolov once said that Gagarin possessed a smile that lit up the Cold War. episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.